Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, this morning is the close of a large cycle of the Christian calendar. We've celebrated Advent and Christmas, Epiphany and Lent, Easter and Pentecost together. We've followed the whole story of Christ from beginning to end, and Trinity Sunday is a day in which the church sums up everything it has learned about Jesus by following his life. In other words, what is it that Jesus has intended to teach us about God, and what does he expect us to do about it? So when Jesus stands on that mountain of ascension, he puts 33 years of mission in a nutshell. Go into the whole world and make disciples. Baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. And look, I am always with you, even to the end of time. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've revealed something new to you, a new name for God. It's your responsibility to go and share that name because there's life found in that name. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright tells of his encounter with a book, which he admits he didn't buy, called The God We Want. That title, he says, manifests the idolatry of our age perfectly. Everyone is pursuing the God they want, the God of their own imagination, the God invented by human heart, and very few are pursuing the God they really need. Jesus has revealed to us the God we really need, and yet many of us balk at that revelation. We want something different. Occasionally when I'm teaching a college course in Christian theology, I'll come against a biblical doctrine that runs against the grain of some student. The doctrine of sin or the doctrine of predestination, Whatever it is, I found that this student will usually blurt out something like, I don't like this doctrine. I refuse to believe it. Somehow these young Christian students have come to believe that Christian theology is something we get to vote on. And that's, of course, when I launch into my tirade about how the Christian faith is not the old country buffet. <laughs> we don't get to pick and choose what we believe about God or how we speak about God. Christian faith is like eating dinner at home with mom. When you clean your plate, even when it has Brussels sprouts on it, then you get dessert, because that's the way mom made it. And there are rewards for finally choking down those Brussels sprouts, right? In addition to dessert, you get some vitamins and minerals that you didn't think you needed, but you do. And there are rewards for embracing even biblical doctrines that don't make us immediately happy. Part of the reward 
is the simple is the simple faith that acknowledges that the truth about God doesn't come from me, it comes from God. That what that I believe what God has revealed, whether or not I find it tasteful, because God is God, and frankly, I'm not. One of the primary themes of my doctoral thesis is that in the last 300 years, Christians have turned their search for truth inward. No longer is it assumed that the God we want and the God we need might be two separate things. And so we've become comfortable with the notion that every believer is free to create his or her own religion, free to create his or her own image of what God is like. And so long as that image makes them happy, then that's all that really matters. It occurs to me as time goes on in ministry that perhaps one of the most difficult things for contemporary people to grasp about Christianity is that it's not about my speculation about God. It's about God's revelation of himself. We don't believe things simply because we want to. We believe things because we're compelled by the authority of God. We're compelled to believe what God says about himself. And so we're not left groping in the dark about God. Instead, the scriptures assure us that God has spoken to us definitively through the prophets and the apostles. And even when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, who revealed the full character of God to the world in flesh. And so, so as Soren Kierkegaard so bluntly puts it, the only proper relation to revealed truth is to believe it. If God has spoken, then we're compelled to humbly assent. And so when it comes to God talk, we disciples are compelled to accept the revelation of God on, on the matter rather than create in our minds the God we want. Because in the end, the, the God we want is incapable of saving us. And so Jesus has come. He stands on the mountain of ascension to proclaim not the God we want, but the God we need. Now, there seem to be two opposite errors that arise when it comes to talking about God that we ought to avoid. The first is what I perceive to be the false humility of the liberal position that says God is so far beyond us that none of us could ever say anything truthfully about him, that all our language is flawed and empty, and so we're just left to speculate. If Christian theology is simply human speculation, you folks could find something to better do, better to do on a Sunday like this. You could be better, you find yourself better off on the beach than you are in a pew. Because my speculation is just as good as yours. And so if you want to speak about God in your way and I in mine, that's fine. If you want to refer to God as divine father because that comforts you, and I want to think of God as earth goddess because that comforts me, we're both kind of on equal planes because theology is about speculation. One writer says that humans talking about God is like oysters trying to describe a ballerina. Now, of course, in one sense, he's right. We do have our limitations in our ability to grasp the infinite creator. And we ought to never get arrogant about our own theological constructs. God is bigger than our language about God. 
But the opposite error of the liberals that we ought to avoid is this. People who think they have God completely figured out. They have all the right doctrine and they're willing to fight for it. 500 years ago, this attitude led religious folks to torture and execute any heretic who might disagree with you. Anybody who didn't have God all figured out was seen as a danger or a threat. Today it leads to a kind of intolerance, which at the very least still verbally assaults people who see things differently. It seems to me that in both instances, those people who say we really can't say anything about God and those people who say we've got God all figured out, in both cases we have essentially the same problem. In both cases there's a refusal to admit to God's revelation of himself as revelation. The fact that God has actually spoken to us in Jesus Christ. The liberal group assumes that we're left to our own minds and therefore we have nothing to say at all. The fundamentalist group assumes that they've got God completely nailed down and they become proud of their knowledge, proud of the fact that they have got it figured out and they become stubbornly arrogant towards those who seem to disagree. Both groups assume that knowledge of God depends on our intellect, on how smart we happen to be. And both groups, in the end, fail to hear God speak at all. Kierkegaard says again of these folks, they do not have the patience to listen to God's revelation. If God has spoken, if he has revealed himself in Scripture and in Christ, then we actually can say something about God. But what we can say about God is bound to what God has said about himself. That means that we can, we can speak truthfully about God, but that what we speak is not our truth. It doesn't come from us. This is God's truth. And that should create within us not arrogance, but humility and thankfulness. People have approached the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three and yet one, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but not three gods, but only one. People have approached this doctrine as if it were simple, as if it were just as obvious and clear as anything, as only an, uh, an idiot would say otherwise. But when you really think about it, what is it that the doctrine of the Trinity really teaches us about God? That God is bad at math? That the Christian faith is really just a bundle of nonsense? Ultimately, I would suggest to you that what the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us is that we must humbly trust what God says about himself, that we take what God says at face value and leave a lot of room for mystery. Because to say that we believe the Trinity is as much to say that we know something about God as it is to say we don't know anything about God except for what he says. As God has revealed himself through Scripture, gradually as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He's essentially been saying to us, yes, you can know me, but you can't exhaust me. As you come closer to me, you'll know me better, but you will never fully comprehend me. Instead of making us proud of our theology, the doctrine of the Trinity should make us humble and receptive to God as he reveals himself, a God who makes himself known 
and still remains a mystery. C.S. Lewis reminded us that the truth about God is never neat and compact. When humans invent their own religion, it's usually very understandable. It solves all the problems. In fact, most heresies are derived from trying to make the mysteries of God completely rational and comprehensible. But we know from life that the truth is never tidy. And the God who comes to us as Father, Son, Spirit, reminds us that while he wants us to know him, we will never come to the end of him. We will never rise to his level. And let's be honest. Would a God who could be exhausted by your reason be any use to you? Would a God who was perfectly comprehensible to you be worth following and obeying? God transcends us in order to be a God who can be of real use to us. We follow because there's always more to learn. There's more mystery to be unveiled. Just as with the first disciples, we stick with Jesus because there's always something more, always some new revelation about who God is. And so today in our gospel, we see Jesus ending his earthly ministry. He's come full circle. He ends his ministry where it began, on a mountain. The Sermon on the Mount, which we've looked at for several weeks, anticipated this day when Jesus would stand again on a mountain, exalted, and he would ask his disciples to accept his full authority, that they would follow him in radical obedience, that they would listen to his teaching and live it out in the world. And so Jesus stands on this mountain with the full authority of heaven, and he commissions all his followers to go to the same work, but with a broader focus. Go into the whole world, Jesus says. Make disciples of every nation. And so the work of God continues to this day under the full authority of Jesus. Jesus is speaking a divine command to his followers, and the disciples now have an even fuller sense of this new revelation of God. How is it, they thought to themselves, surely, how is it that we Jews who have believed in one God for thousands of years, how is it that we are now to think of Jesus, the risen one, claiming to speak with the authority of God? Matthew tells us that seeing Jesus in this light wasn't easy for everyone. He says that while some worshipped Jesus, as Thomas had days before, crying out, My Lord and my God. But Matthew reminds us that some saw Jesus and still doubted. It's not an easy thing that Jesus is asking us to do. For a Jew especially who confesses that there's one God, every time the Jews gathered for prayer in the synagogue, they would pray the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. This is the basic confession of Israel. This is the creed of the people of God. Unlike the pagans around them, the people of God worship and serve not many gods, but one God. And yet now the disciples stand on the mountain with Jesus claiming to speak with the full authority of God. These good monotheistic Jews are faced with this new revelation about Jesus. 
And so it must have occurred to them, how can we be faithful to our tradition, to the teaching of Scripture, and still affirm the fact that Jesus speaks with God's authority, that Jesus reveals the Father to us. This is the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's such a profound mystery that the Apostle Paul, who was not only a Jewish rabbi, remember, but a Pharisee, the Apostle Paul takes this Shema, this confession of Israel from Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he transforms it into 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Listen, there is one God, the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. The Shema has been expanded to include Jesus. And it's this kind of confession manipulation that is quite remarkable for a monotheistic Jew. It would be almost like the next time we printed in our bulletin the Apostles' Creed, I decided to add the line, I believe in C.S. Lewis. It would be blasphemous unless I had given, been given some revelation that nobody else had that C.S. Lewis had been promoted to the divine trinity. In fact, the only reason it isn't blasphemous for Paul is the very simple fact that Jesus has revealed himself in this way. He's revealed himself as bearing the full authority of heaven. He has identified himself again and again with the God of Israel, someone who is worthy of worship and praise. And when you get to the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God, Jesus, shares a throne with God and receives the full worship of the saints and angels. And that in itself is a remarkable mystery that Jesus, several times in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, is the willing recipient of people's worship. While we see throughout the rest of Scripture that whenever some creature is worshipped, whenever a human or an angel is worshipped, there's no equivocation. They say, you must not worship me. You must worship the Lord your God and him alone. And so the church suddenly has to deal with this mystery, the reality that, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are worthy of worship in a religion that confesses that there's only one God. And so with the full authority of God on his shoulders, Jesus sends his disciples back out of the world with this good news back out with the responsibility of creating more followers to create new disciples. Now, the idea of a disciple eliminates any false dichotomy between doctrine and practice because a disciple is both a learner and a follower. We, as Christians, both follow Jesus and learn from him. We learn to follow there's no room for an intellectualized Christianity which thinks profound thoughts about Jesus but doesn't obey him. There's no room for a sentimental Christianity that claims to love Jesus but has no interest in learning anything more about him. The disciple is called to follow Jesus and to obey him in all things. We become lifelong learners in the school of the Holy Spirit when we follow Jesus Christ. And there's nothing about the teaching of Jesus that ever goes out of fashion. 
True followers are people who are learning, in the words of Jesus, to keep all things, to obey all things to the end of the age. And so it's very clear from the teaching of Jesus that this is a doctrine that has to be lived, a doctrine that has to be practical. So as Christians, we're faced with the profound mystery of the Trinity that engages the mind. It requires deep reflection on the revealed character of God, but also that requires that we live in the world in a certain way. It's far too simple to think about the scriptural revelation of God as Father, Son, and Spirit as simply some abstract doctrine that we have to affirm in order to join the club, some piece of bad math that we've all agreed not to calculate, like conspirators in a corporate scandal who all know that the books really don't add up, but nobody wants to blow the whistle. Somehow we have to grapple with this reality with this new name for God that Jesus introduces. And we have to grapple with it not simply as a mental, intellectual problem. We have to grapple with it as something that we need to live in the world. Jesus says, go and make disciples, immersing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice that this is not three names, because the word name is singular. This is not three gods. This is the one God revealing himself in a new way. Father, Son, Spirit is the Christian name for God. It's a new name for God for a new people. And this is the way that God has chosen to to reveal God's self to us. And what we see in this new name is that Christians are getting a glimpse into a God who exists in perfect covenant community, a God who exists in an ideal family of relationship. By being baptized or immersed into that name, we're being drawn up into the divine family. We're invited to share fellowship with him. This is a God who has shared perfect love, perfect communication, and faithful covenant for all of eternity and is now inviting us to share the same. Imagine, if you can, a perfect human family, say the Brady Bunch, who've decided to share the joys of their perfect family life with an orphaned street urchin. This is what it's like to know God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It means that we're being invited to join this divine family that we've been drawn into this ideal relationship that God is inviting us to share in his life out of the brokenness and dysfunction of human family into the perfect love, communication, and faithful covenant of the divine family. To be a people who are baptized, to be a people who have been adopted into God's family, is to be a people who live with this new name. In fact, I would suggest to you that this is the primary way that we make disciples. It's not so much handing gospel tracts to strangers or preaching on street corners. There's a place for that. But it's rather the whole life of the Christian being lived as a faithful testimony to the kind of God we serve. Living your life in such a way that reveals a God who has revealed himself 
as Father, Son, and Spirit to the world. It's your going out into the world to work, to play, to marriage, to ministry. And in your going, immerse people into this new name for God. Live before them as adopted children who share in the fellowship of the divine. And the power to do this is built in. It's built into the divine fellowship we share because Jesus has drawn us up into fellowship with the Father. And because Jesus has breathed into us his Holy Spirit, he can make us this divine promise. Listen, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We stand as a people who are present before God and whose presence is lived out among us. For people who understood the Old Testament languages or the Old Testament scriptures, the, the disciples heard this promise as Old Testament code language because repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God makes this promise to his people. I am with you. I am with you always. And now these words are on the lips of Jesus himself, the Jesus whom Matthew reminds us in the first chapter of this book, is Emmanuel, God with us. And now Jesus closes the book with the same promise, that in Jesus Christ, God is in our midst. The God who reveals to us the Father, who gives to us the Spirit. We find a God who will never leave us or forsake us, because we now share a kinship with the divine family. So Christian discipleship, is really nothing else than living out our, our baptism before the world, showing the world what it looks like to be immersed into this new family of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's that immersion that speaks to the world of the kind of God we serve. Harvard preacher Peter Gomes tells of a Sunday school class in which a little girl was drawing a picture with crayons. When the teacher asked her what she was drawing, the little girl replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher tried to gently correct the girl by saying, well, you know, dear, no one really knows what God looks like. And the little girl replied, they will when I'm done. <laughs> we face a world that is skeptical about whether God can truly be known. And in facing this world, we Christians have some choices. We could take a stance of false humility that rejects the revelation of God and says, well, nobody really knows what God is like. We can only speculate. We can only guess. We can take the stance of arrogance and claim that we've got God nailed down because we just happen to be more clever than everyone else. Or we can embrace the mystery of God as God has come to us, as God has revealed himself to us, as loving Father, as compassionate Christ, as empowering Holy Spirit. We can live as a people who are immersed into this divine family, people who live as temples of the living God, so that anybody who watches us will see revealed for them the portrait of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Sure, nobody knows what God looks like, people will say. But the church can say with the authority of Christ, 
They will when we get done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.